Sweet Bridge Alliance special with Joshua Shane of Life ID. Sweet talk. Blockchain. Global commerce. Cryptocurrency. Supply chain. Decentralization. Liquidity. DAOs. Logistics. Crypto economics. Game theory. Fair trade. Altcoins. IoT. Exchanges. Fintech. 3D printing. Artificial intelligence. Security. In a decentralized world where global commerce is frictionless and value is liquid, there's Sweet Talk from Sweetbridge. The show that brings together the worlds of blockchain and supply chain with the thought leaders of a new liquid economy. And now, your host, Jason English. Yeah, hi, I'm uh, Jason English here with the Sweetbridge Alliance. And I'm joined today by Joshua Shane, uh, CMO of Life ID. Hey, Jason, nice to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you on. We are both based in sunny Seattle today. And we're here to discuss the connection between identity and global commerce. So there's a lot of uh, common ground that I think we've shared. And you know, signing you up as a, a member of the Sweetbridge Alliance is a is a great step to see Life ID um, and some of the things you're doing in this space right now. So for us, we always think of um, you know, commerce really does start with identity. So what is your take on that? Well, one of the things that we've run into as we've started to create uh, an identity solution for uh, blockchain and uh, Web 2.0 ecosystems is that uh, identity is kind of uh, the linchpin of any kind of trade or commerce or any kind of transaction. Uh, you always have to identify who you are as on one side of the transaction and who you are interacting with. And being assured that you are the person that you say you are and that you are transacting with the entity that you think that you're transacting with is essential, right? Obviously, um, if you are you know, trading with someone and your money or the goods go to the wrong place, that's really important. And that ties in very closely with supply chain and ensuring that that supply chain is robust and uh, has those connections that are necessary for, those trade, for the trade and commerce to go off the way we want it to. Yeah, I mean, for us, obviously, it's, there's not much value in a uh, in a, having a trading network with anonymous partners. So you definitely need the, that level of trust. I mean, the, but you also need to know that there's not any unauthorized information being shared, um, and that's kind of where this this idea of identity crosses with authority. Uh, you know, for us, we always think about. Um, if I'm a member of a company or a, or a trading union or a professional organization, you know, what is my what are my levels of authority for my personal self within that organization to make decisions or to make buying decisions? So it's it's like there's two levels of identity in that sense. Yeah, it, it's challenging in an enterprise context when you're trying to allow multiple people to have certain kinds of authority and trust rights within a larger. Uh, entity transaction system. And so one of the things that uh, we're going to be doing over time is allowing for those kinds of entities to have multiple signatories so they and multiple kinds of rights. So there will be various levels where someone can prove who they are through the app and allow them to have a certain kind of authority to do certain levels of transactions, whether it's you know, or whether it's around the uh, financial level, like you, anything over or under a hundred thousand dollars, or whether it's uh, around a category, like you can, you know, you can sign for these kinds of things, but not these kinds of things. So, 
as you as you say, there's a lot of nuance in how we identify, especially in entities rather than individuals, and how that's managed largely around uh, around trade and commerce. Yeah, there's an interesting uh, element to Life ID where you're kind of building a base layer for identity. We, uh, um, if you look at it, it's basically something that almost anybody can develop upon, um, and that includes other identity solutions that might have more specialized purposes. Can you kind of explain how that would work? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, uh, Life ID is what uh, the Life ID platform are basically a set of protocols that acts as uh, a layer two that sits on top of a blockchain and takes advantage of the capabilities of a, of a blockchain. And as a layer two solution, we we provide basically a platform or set of protocols that anyone can use via an API. So if anyone if anyone wants to have an identity solution, um, they don't have to build it themselves. That's often very challenging. We obviously want to have modular solutions that can plug in and help the ecosystem grow and scale as quickly as possible. So we are we are specifically designing it that so that it is a open and permissionless. So anyone can use it. Anyone can build on it. It's an open source set of protocols that will be governed and driven by the users of those sets of protocols. And we are additionally making sure that there is portability because we believe that um, individuals or entities who uh, hold the identity should also own and control all the data that's associated with that identity. So that means even if someone decides that they want to establish their identity data and their credentials on our platform, if at some point they find another solution and they think that serves their needs better, they are more than welcome to take that identity data and bring it elsewhere onto another solution. There are other things out there, civic, sovereign, that have different philosophies behind the kinds of services that they're offering. And if it happens to match what they're doing better, you can you can take your data and, uh, and transfer it over. Likewise, there are lots of companies that are having very specific kinds of identity solutions that are focused either on an enterprise vertical or on a particular kind of use case, either in the enterprise or in government or in the military, whatever the case may be, they can also, as long as they're using um, the standards that the W3C is is defining around uh, these kinds of identifiers, as long as they're using those standards, they can port the, that information onto our solution as well. And so um, what are the, the token economics behind uh, operating an open source protocol like this and, and building it out, putting it out in the world. How do the token economics drive mm -hmm. the ecosystem for this product? I mean, we think of it as you know, trade coins, uh, um, you know, having a coin like Sweetcoin for, um, as a discount token or mm -hmm. something like Bridgecoin is a stable trade token. So what is, what's your token dynamic in that? That's a, good, that's a good question. And it's one of the things that's different about, about our solution. Um, a lot of the other solutions um, are driven by either a set of stewards or by a consortium. And so they don't have uh, general governance and use by a broad set of users. And as a result, um, the, the approach that we take for tokenization is designed to incent the ecosystem to participate in a way that other environments don't because they have a set of stewards or they have a set of users in their consortium that they give all the responsibility to. Because we're really focused on the open source community, we're focused on community governance, our desire is to create an internal economy that incents users to participate both in the governance and the use of the platform. 
And so as a result, the way the fees work for the transactions, if you're making a write to a blockchain that has to do with an, a verified credential associated with an identity, then there's a transaction fee. And the bulk of that transaction fee goes to the app developer. So if I'm using um, the SweetBridge app and the SweetBridge app is using the uh, LifeID platform as their identity layer, then uh, some third party that's using the SweetBridge app that goes through this transaction process, a bunch of that uh, token uh, fee ends up going back to SweetBridge to continue to incent SweetBridge to participate in the uh, token economy of the LifeID platform. And then there's a small a bit that goes to paying for gas on the blockchain, whichever, whatever it is. On, um, on Ethereum, of course, it's called gas. On the R-chain, it's going to be called phlogiston or flow. And so a bunch of a small amount of that goes to the, uh, goes to the blockchain, right? Uh, and then the last part in our system is a very small part of that transaction fee, and that goes to the foundation to keep nodes running, to do marketing and all the usual things that are done to help promote and maintain the platform. Hmm. Um, so, so Joshua, what's it, what's it been like um, entering into the marketing process for a, a decentralized blockchain pro uh, <laughs> project? I mean, I think... Uh, I've been doing this for about a year, and it's not like anything I've ever done in my life. Uh, so, so how is that transition? Having been an ex expert marketer, leader of marketing <laughs> teams for you know, a couple decades? Yeah, it, you know, as you say, it, it is very different. And, and not only is it different because of the decentralized nature of kind of the blockchain ethos, but in particular because what LifeID is focused on is self-sovereign identity, this idea that you control all of your identity data and you want to resist the ability of your identity to be censored for transactions um, and that you don't want to share data that um, you're trying to keep private. We have this particular challenge about how you do marketing in a decentralized environment where you can't capture people's data because that's against the ethos of the whole process, right? So we're in this funny situation where the last decade plus of the marketing has been, how do you capture people's data and then use it to market to them, right? So now we're in this funny situation where, how do you not capture people's data and then how do you market to them, right? So it's very much, at least at the beginning, we're in, obviously in the early adopter phase, right? People who are really motivated around blockchain, motivated around particular solutions, or people like you know the founders of Sweetbridge who have had been trying to solve this problem in uh, supply chain forever and have finally, finally found the technology that will help them do that with blockchain. So there's a set of kind of blockchain diehards, obviously the Bitcoin maximalists and people who believe in Ethereum and then some of the other blockchains that are coming out now as well. But all of those, all of those uh, communities kind of have a then overlap with each other that allow us to kind of really build, uh, build uh, an audience of the right kinds of people, not just in blockchain, not just in some of the verticals that are associated with blockchain, but also in privacy and identity and all of these other areas where we are finally making inroads into the people who really will end up consuming this kind of kind of solution, but not only consuming it, but helping to drive it and helping to govern it and, and helping us because they are experts in identity and private privacy, telling us the direction it needs to go as part of that. So being able to just set something up within a certain set of bounds and then let the community help drive it is definitely a new experience, especially when it has to be as hands-off of private data as possible. Yeah, it's basically a, 
it turns the old advantage of marketing on its head that, that we knew from traditional days where you're uh, trying to, to gather and exploit as much of that data as you can to determine user preferences, do things like personalization. So it has to be done in the in a new way. Yeah. It's going to change the way everybody builds yeah. everything. I, and, and, you know, what often happens is that you have your your style of marketing ends up mat matching the industry that you're in and how that industry behaves. And so in the same way that we have, um, you know, a decentralized infrastructure for blockchain ecosystems, we are going to end up with decentralized marketing environments as well. I mean, you, I think Sweetbridge has done this as well or better than anyone else. You guys are spending, have spent the last year traveling the world talking to these kinds of independent nodes of blockchain communities and believers about the value of the solution and how blockchain enables this transformation of the way supply chain works. And those kinds of you know, person direct one-to-one -one or one-to-small-n outreaches um, is essential in this environment um, in a way that I haven't seen it actually in the past. There, there's, a, there's a real irony here in that um, for a system that's designed to be decentralized with trust, this is one of the most kind of um, interwoven, trusting groups of people together where there's the, the web of trust within the community is more intense and tighter than any environment that I've worked in, including Linux open source and a lot of other environments. And so the, this internal sense of trust that we have within the community is allowing us to create systems and to create platforms that actually um, create trusted environments that don't actually require people to trust one-to-one -one in the way that we do within the community. So there's a kind of interesting dichotomy there, but it's so far working very effectively. So yeah, sometimes I wonder about how that applies to different use cases. Um, you know, as we partner with LifeID at Sweetbridge and, and other projects that are, you know, cover different aspects of our development life cycle as well as working with other companies. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's really interesting to see how identity fits into various user workflows. And I'd be really curious how, you know, the, the partners that you're working with on the supply chain side see friction in the current process for their identity requirements and how, you know, adding a seamless, you know, blockchain-based identity solution can, you know, compare uh, collaboratively with the Sweetbridge solution to meet, the, meet that user need. What, could, what are you hearing from your partners about the, the need for identity and how that smooths out the process? Well, it's a big deal. Most, uh, I think the first main question most big companies ask is, where is this data coming from and how can I trust the source of that data? Because it really is all about transparency and their, their primary concern is if I'm getting a data feed, who is that from, what company is it from, and can I trust the source of the data? Because all decisions are basically made on the basis of you know knowing what my you know supply and demand signals are and responding mm -hmm. to it uh, quickly and and that's where investments are made. So I think a lot of the concern in uh, in identity is uh, we we have it at one level, which is the application layer of our own you know wallet and Sweetbridge economy, and those are apps that you would use on your computer or phone or or whatever, just kind of like you guys would have with life ideas and application on your phone. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's also the layer of, uh, like you're talking about, the authorization uh, to do certain things within companies. And I, need, uh, I would need the ability to test that, yes, I am a authorized officer of the company. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, I have a certified 
uh, bill of lading here. It's been approved by the appropriate customs authorities. It's been, you know, right. um, inspected by, you know, if it's a meat inspector or some kind of a ethical board. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a lot of layers where this is going to happen, um, especially in supply chain. Yeah, you bring up a really good point around, you know, around how that trust is developed because we talk about blockchains as a way to kind of establish the truth of some transaction because you can say it was done at this time and you know that it hasn't been changed, but there are external sources of trust that we need as well. In the ID community, we talk about um, kind of a a three-tiered loop where you have an issuer who verifies a credential. Let's say um, here in Seattle, the state of Washington issues uh, an ID card, right? That's usually a driver's license. And then you have the holder, me in this case, I hold this this verified credential that's issued by the state. And then you have uh, someone who wants to verify that it's me. So when I go to the liquor store, I pull out my driver's license, I hand it over to them, and they say, okay, yes, I trust the state of Washington, and yes, in fact, you are who you are, you're over 21, and then they basically verify that by visually looking at it. In our world, we see that as extremely inefficient for a number of reasons. One is all you're trying to do is prove as the holder of that verified credential from the state that you are over 21, but when you hand over your ID, you're not only just handing over something that says I'm over 21, you're handing over something that says I'm this height, I'm this weight, and my eye color is this, and for God's sake, you're giving them your street address, right? That is the kind of information that people want to maintain private, and there's no reason for the person at the liquor store to know that about you. So instead, if we just get a verified credential from the state that ends up as a QR code on your phone, you can just show the person at the liquor store a QR code, they can zap it, it verifies that you are over 21, and because you have a phone with biometrics and all this, that you, you can prove that it's you as well. And so the trust that you're establishing there is actually trusting the state as the issuer of that claim. So in many, many cases, you always are doing that. Whether it's, you know, if you want to be an accredited investor, you have a CPA that will issue um, a credential that says this person qualifies as an accredited investor for you know, between this time and this time. And there's always going to be external kind of uh, sideband webs of trust that occur within society that will still continue to make things run. The difference is you can eliminate a lot of those third parties that will often get in the way of transactions that will either extract economic rents or slow down the process or in some way make trade inefficient. Yeah, and that, I think that kind of that almost bleeds into the uh, our last mile is not the the customer, it's probably the people who are at the the root the roots of the supply chain. You know, the farmers or miners or people who are uh, working in small factories um, that have to produce the goods that are often in developing countries where there is no identification system. There's no government ID. They don't have a way to establish that. So when when you're touching on this idea of biometric identification, it's important for us to to help these people with no identity establish something so they can have access to banking-like services so they can get small loans or or get actually paid in in a fungible form that they can use in their everyday life. And that's not as easy as it seems. And and we think if if identity can reach those levels of, of other countries, that it, that the the benefits will trickle up to the rest of uh, the global economy and, and, and actually help everybody. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. When when I first started this, one of my one of the things that I really cared about was providing identification for the unbanked, for people who didn't have other resources in developing countries. 
And I really thought that that was going to take three to five years to really start to take root and develop. But in the process of, of uh, beginning this journey, we have run into a number of organizations who are already thinking about this very deeply. Um, Paul Allen's Vulcan is thinking very deeply about how they can help refugees and other unbanked populations with identities that will allow for kinds of portable kinds of information around either healthcare or financial that have no way of uh, maintaining records now. Um, similarly, the, you know, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation here locally are thinking very deeply about these issues. I know um, the uh, federal government is as well as a bunch of other NGOs. So I was thinking that we would initially have to establish the value of blockchain and have some kind of uh, developed world implementations before it would transition over. But very much like uh, some technologies um, have kind of skipped a generation, it seems like that's starting to happen as well. So you know, the, the example that is always brought up is that you know, developing countries basically skipped landlines and went right to using cellular. And I see a similar thing happening where there is not a set of traditional banks or traditional other institutions that are helping people get identification or banking capabilities, but instead it's going to skip forward and skip a generation to blockchain-based solutions, whether it's identity or different kinds of banking transactions that can be supported by uh, blockchain ecosystems. And that's frankly very exciting to me. It's one of the big reasons that I got into this area and to see that there is a, a straight, relatively straight path that's obviously challenging to get from point A to point B, but there's a pretty straight path that we can see about how we can provide those services, and there are people working on it right now. Yeah, it's much harder to corrupt and exploit something like that, especially in, in those kind of environments, and, and certainly is important to us as well. So it's been a, um, it should be an interesting collaboration to, to work together on some of these uh, challenges, I think. Yeah, we share a lot of values, and our goals are, are, are beautifully aligned, and um, uh, we're very much looking forward to uh, working with Sweetbridge, both in terms of um, what we can do um, on the ground uh, for helping people, but also how we can change the conversation and let everyone know what's possible in these new ecosystems. Excellent. All right. Thanks, Joshua. And uh, give my regards to the team uh, here in Seattle. Uh, it's great to see projects like this uh, popping up here that um, add so much to the scene here that's going on. Well, likewise, thank you, Jason. Um, it's been great uh, working with you over the past year or so. I've enjoyed meeting your team when they've uh, visited here in Seattle. And uh, we have a lot of great things coming up. And I'm looking forward to you know, touring the world with you and solving these problems together. Cool. All right. Well, thanks very much. That concludes our <laughs> podcast for today. Sweet talk. 